0: let us pray. Dear Father, as we now have the privilege of joining together and examining your word together, we ask that the word, which is the bread of life, might become life to us. The streams of life might flow into our hearts and through our souls, transforming us into the people that you desire for us to be. We rejoice in your word. We rejoice in your presence. And I ask, Lord, that my words might be fitting and in keeping with and faithful to your word, because your word alone is holy. Your word alone comes with your power. In Jesus' name, amen. For the last several weeks, well, sometime prior to that, we've been looking together at the Ten Commandments. And uh, instead of doing the... uh, usual way that I've been beginning these Ten Commandments things. We'll wait until we enter a new commandment. How does that sound? And, and then those of you who have not been here for one run to zoo and these sorts of things will figure out where we're going with that in order to memorize the Ten Commandments. But as we've gotten particularly into this commandment, which is the Fourth Commandment, which is found in Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. And it continues on from there. This is basically the message of the fourth commandment. As we've entered into this commandment, I've taken more Sundays on this commandment than any of the others. The reason for that being... (coughs) That that commandment is specifically one, the one of ten, which is regarded by many people as not being applicable today in our time, in our day, in our age, even among believers. <clears throat> but in finishing the examination of this commandment, as I mentioned this past week, several people had asked me questions regarding worship. How should I worship? How can I worship with my family? And over the course of time as a church, these questions naturally come up. What is worship? What do we include in the worship service that's worship? Are there things in the worship service that aren't worship? How do we know what worship is? And so, last week, we began to look at this. I intended to finish it last week, and I got way ahead of myself or behind myself, whichever way you want to put it. So we looked at the priority and goals of worship last week, we looked at preparing for worship, and we began to look at the parts of worship, what is involved. Now, as I was considering worship, and what, and, and I understand the background for this, is not just that we're talking about worship in the context of what happens on Sunday morning in the church. Worship is something that should go on in our lives as individuals, in our life as a church, and in our homes. Something that should be occurring in all these places. But As I thought specifically about worship in the church, because that's the setting that we're dealing with specifically right now, I thought of back to the days when I was growing up in my parents' home. In the church we went to all that time in Wheaton, Illinois, and there were so many marvelous memories of that that came back to me. Um... I remember specifically more summer times than I guess winter time days in church, but in the summertime, the tall windows would be open, and from time to time, in the sweltering heat—of course, there was no air conditioning you could feel that breeze come through, and occasionally there would be a bee on the inside of the screen buzzing around. And then it would fly down over someone's head. This wasn't the kind of thing that you thought about during the worship service, but it was just sort of distractions from the main event. The scene in that church was and still is some of the best I've ever experienced. Magnificent choir, congregation of people who sang, like you only, there were mm, a lot more of you than there are of you. (laughs) But uh, the acoustics of the Sanctuary, magnificent, <clears throat> a joyful place to be. And I guess, <clears throat> as I consider worship, and as, as I consider my part in worship, in having us worship as a congregation, you put things together, bits and snatches from different things. But the main goal in worship is always to be the same. That Everything is to be focused on honoring God on remembering his gifts and considering his glory. And I think back to that time and those times. And what fills me is not a sense of, of questions or difficulties or the circumstances that were unpleasant that I was going through at those times. But the, re- the, the remembrance, the memory that in God's house with God's people there was joy there was an experience which transcended whatever I was going through or other people were going through. Remember the people who sat a couple rows in front of us happened to be the family who, um, my brother Tim married their daughter, and so you could see all these people and these ties. And um, from time to time, the distractions of worship get in the way as well. And so I think it's, it's important for us to recognize that distractions do play a part in worship. But our main goal is not to focus on the distractions, but what is our intent and what are we doing? I still remember the time several years ago when, when my sister-in-law Meryl said, <clears throat> remember they were sitting in front of us just a few rows, <clears throat> and she said, Oh boy, I still remember the morning when one of you boys, and she thought it was I, but it was my brother David, when one of you leaned over to your dad and said, I think I'm going to be sick. And your dad said, Well, just sit here a minute. <laughs> and then you leaned over again and said, I'm going to be sick. <laughs> and so your dad picked, picked, picked you up and took you out, and he didn't make it. <laughs> and that was right about their row. <laughs> And in those days, the church was not carpeted, which was a good thing. But as we look at the parts of worship, this past week we looked at the creeds, <clears throat> New Testament creeds, and, <coughs> and church creeds. We looked at the place that music has in worship. <clears throat> and today, let's, let's move into looking at prayers, the place of prayer in worship. Christ has said this, <clears throat> his house is to be a house of prayer is to be a place where people are involved in talking with him. He quotes from himself in Matthew 21, verse 12, what he has spoken through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 56, verse 6. And it's interesting, I didn't pick this for this specific reason, but it's interesting here that in Isaiah 56, verse 6, he's prophesying about a time in the future when the foreigners will be added to the group of believers. Okay, So Gentile addition to the group of believers, which we picture clearly is involving the time when Christ has come and the Gentile people have come into the church as believers. And this is what he says in verse 6. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer." And give them joy in my house of prayer. Now well, there again is that expression joy. That is what worship is to be all about. And God's house of prayer is where there is a peace to talk with him and to know that he has the power to handle whatever we bring before his presence. little sidelight because this is all falling under the heading Sabbath. It's interesting to notice here in this passage that he's speaking about keeping a Sabbath without desecrating it At a point in time in which the church, whether you count the Old Testament church or the New Testament, in which the body of believers includes foreigners, includes people who are not Jews, the Sabbath carried forward. Matthew 21, verse 12, one of the things that angered Jesus most was the fact that there were money changers in his house. And they were saying, well, that'll be $2, please, instead of People gathered together to pray and to talk with him. They were carrying on commerce. In other words, business was going on in the church. I think we can see this sort of thing going on in churches today, in which a lot of people from time to time will think that the church is the place which is a good place to be because it is good for business relationships. That's not what the church is about. That's not what worship is about. Worship is about our conversation with God through prayer. That is one of the key elements of worship. What is involved in prayer? What are the elements of prayer? Prayer first should involve praise. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. God, may your name be regarded as holy. Praise is different from thanksgiving. Praise is different from many other elements that are to be involved in prayer because it is simply speaking of the attributes and the glory of the Heavenly Father. It's not as a result of His blessings to us. It's not a personal, selfish sort of involvement that we're talking about when praise is supposed to be involved in prayer. What we are talking about is the glorious attributes of God, His beauty, His holiness, His justice... These things which have caused him then to work in history in the way in which he's worked and reveal himself in his word. There is also to be confession involved in prayer. This is expressed beautifully by the tax collector who is compared with the Pharisee in the example that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 18. The tax collector stood at a distance. In other words, he was in the background in the synagogue or the temple. (coughs) He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Confession has to be involved in our prayers. Because you and I realize, if we have any relationship with God whatsoever, that without confession, there's no means of prayer. There's no reality in prayer because there is no relationship there. If we will not acknowledge that we are unholy before God and cannot even step into his presence through confession, Why pray? There's no purpose in prayer. Thanksgiving must be involved in prayer. Thanksgiving is the way in which we have experienced and others have experienced God's work. Lord, thank you for a glorious fall day in the midst of summer. (laughs) However you want to put it. Thank you for your gifts to me. Thank you for the fact that when I woke up this morning and it was 50-some degrees outside, my home was warm. Thank you for the things that you have done in my family. Thank you for protection in journeys. All of these things. We should be constantly expressing gratitude to God. And this is worship. Because these, again, are acknowledgments of His part in this whole process. Intercession should be involved in our prayer. Intercession is the point at which, as we do prior to the pastoral prayer, we say, "Is there? are there any items of praise? That's one part. Is there anything that you would like us to remember as a congregation? And when you lift those things up and you say, please pray for me in this situation or circumstance, please pray for my friend or my co-worker or fellow student in this situation or circumstance, that's intercession. That's us caring enough about other people to say, Because God cares for all of us, I want to lift up your concerns as well. Now, we do that together as a body on Sunday morning. But I seek to remind us during those times of prayer, people don't just ask us to pray now so that we can pray now and forget it later. A real gift is a person who has a gift either by writing these things down or by remembering them. To constantly do it again and again. Now, I find myself, and I'm, I'm not unique in this, telling people I'll pray for them and forgetting that I've said this. I try to write it down. That's the way I remember what I said I prayed for. But then, oftentimes, when I write someone and I say, Oh, I said, Well, I can't say I pray for you daily because <laughs> I haven't been praying for them daily. Oh, I wish I could write that. <laughs> The things that spark our memories, intercession needs to be involved in our worship through prayer and petition. God wants us to bring our request to him. Those things that concern us about our own situation. He's concerned about those things. He loves us. That's not selfishness. Because we're recognizing that he is the glorious God who has the power to change circumstances. And to change our hearts in the midst of circumstances as well. What should be our methodology in prayer? As in every aspect of worship, humility is an absolute must. You cannot come to worship without humility. And humility is necessary in prayer. Remember the example of this tax collector that I just read. He beat his breast. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He felt so lowly that he wouldn't even do these things. He had no pride in him. This is the way in which we come before God in prayer. (coughs) Humility leads many people to to pray kneeling. (coughs) Others to pray with their heads bowed. Some in the privacy of their own homes to lie flat on the ground or in some other place. This is the way, if we remember, that David prayed when he was seeking God's intervention on behalf of the child that Bathsheba was going to have because of his adultery with her. He lay flat on the ground. He would not eat or drink. His family said of Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, that he made it a point when the sun arose for the day that it found him on his knees in prayer. In Luke 22, in Matthew, Mark 14, in Matthew 26, we find that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ knelt, he fell to the ground, and he lay prostrate. He told the disciples to sit and pray And probably they lay down. But they succeeded in sleeping while he prayed. And so, as we consider the methodology of prayer, our key concern needs to be what is it that I can do in prayer in order to keep my mind focused on who I'm talking to and what I'm talking about? A lot of people walk when they pray. Now not, not a whole well, I guess I walk <laughs> preach, but don't normally walk when I pray here on Sundays. If that's what works in your worship, then do it. <clears throat> we need to remember as well that in our methodology of prayer we have we have certain feelings about public prayer. I'm trying to sort of to distill this. And we think to ourselves, flowery versus simple. Written versus prayers from the heart. Each one of us have various feelings regarding these certain questions and debates. What we need to remember with regard to these questions of methodology is this. If it works, if it's given an attitude of humility, and if it glorifies God, then we should not stop it. We should not refuse to do it. We should not prevent others from doing it. A lot of people come to pray in front of a group of people with great fear and trepidation. Many times because they have not done it frequently. And so they say to themselves, I'm going to write this prayer down, and then I'll say what I mean to say. And other people seeing that say, well, if you've written your prayer down, then it's not from your heart. You can't do that. You can't pray like that. Why? Why? We need to be concerned in our worship that God is glorified. And however people are able to do that, best in a way which upholds His honor, we can't ever stop that. It's foolishness on our part. What we need to be concerned about is that our prayer is earnest whether we are praying the Lord's Prayer or a personal prayer, whether we're praying a prayer that is long and lengthy or a prayer that is short and succinct. The result of our worship and prayer could not be better exemplified than by the result of the prayer which is recorded in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. The apostles had just entered into that point in which the church and they were being persecuted as a result of their proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And they gathered together as a group, (coughs) and they prayed, and they quoted from Scripture, which, of course, is a a written or memorized prayer, right, if you're quoting from Scripture. They quoted from Scripture, and they got done praying in unity as a group together. And we read in that passage, verse 31, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, as I began last week explaining that worship was something we do together here on Sunday mornings, but we must also do in our homes, let me say a word about prayer. And include also a word about our next subject. We should be praying together with whoever is in our home. Now, some of us are single. Some of us are living in homes or apartments or dorm rooms by ourselves or with another person. Some of us are couples without children who have either grown up or never had any children. Some of us are couples who have children in our homes. We should be praying together as worship in our homes in the same way that we should be reading God's word together. Definitely as individuals. Definitely also with any who are also in our home. because it is in the context of the home that we learn much of how to worship in the setting of the church even as the church teaches us in turn how we should worship in the home now you and I can quibble about how this doesn't work for us we can talk about how our time schedules don't fit we can talk about how the kids just won't keep still whatever all we want, but if we are not worshiping in these ways together in our homes, if we are not honoring the Lord by kneeling together before Him and and reading His Word together before Him as He desires to be honored, we are not honoring Him. It's that simple. How do you deal with a young child regarding prayer, regarding reading of the Bible? A way to deal with a young child, if you have one, is to have him or her repeat exactly what you have said while you pray a short prayer that expresses what he or she might say. Cover his eyes, hold him still, teach him to pray in this way. How will he learn how to pray in the church, and to pray in a prayerful and honorable attitude before the Lord, because he is taught in the home? What about Bible reading? Ken Taylor gave us the Bible paraphrase, the Living Bible, because his children weren't getting a good understanding of the Bible as he read it to them in his home. And so he said to himself, there has got to be a better way to explain the Bible. And so he also wrote the Bible for little eyes, or if that's not basically what the expression of it is, with pictures for even younger children. Find a translation that works for you if you have children, and a translation that works for your children. For Cassie and Sarah, we read the picture Bible. Because they're at an age where they want to see the pictures. They're not much into sitting and listening to something that has no pictures. And so as we read the picture Bible, it has various parts of incidents that are filled in because the Bible doesn't specifically say how this came to happen. So we try to explain to them, now, this is what happened. This is what the Bible says, without making it a big, long, detailed explanation. But, but this part, we're not sure that this is exactly how it happened. But this is the part you need to know. Now, that seems very complicated to explain, but it seems to work. Slowly but surely, they are learning the stories of the Bible, and we add to this by telling them stories as well. The important thing is that you and I figure out what, when, and where the details, and that we make it work. Because we are responsible before the Lord to make our lives and our homes worshipful. And we have not fulfilled our responsibility and obligation by gathering together with the church family on Sunday. Worship must go on throughout the week. There is another part to worship, which is hearing the word. And there are several ways in which hearing the word is worship. The first is as it is read. Nehemiah 8, chapter 1, says this. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They had just returned to Jerusalem, you remember in this, in this account, from captivity. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the Watergate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. That's a wonderful story there. And as we look at that story there, we realize that this was not a short reading. This was more on the lines of our New Testament marathon reading that we try to do once a year, reading through the New Testament in a 24-hour period. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. Another interesting thing about this passage in the people's worship of God, in listening to his word being read, was what was their attitude? Were they sitting, (coughs) standing, lying during this period? (laughs) Think of four hours at least, standing, listening. That's a long time, isn't it? Maybe that's why it keeps on referring to the fact that men and women and all who could understand. Maybe it was men and women and all who could stand for that. period. (laughs) Anyhow, that is worship, hearing God's word. It is also worship to hear the word as it is expounded and explained. Now here I'm describing the acts of worship, not using the names given for these elements of worship as they belong to the spiritual gifts. I'm using descriptive terminology, not gift terminology, such as prophecy or teaching. I'm trying to be interchangeable in all of this, just speaking of the Word of God as as it is is expounded and explained. Ezra read the Bible to these people. That's what happened in that passage in Nehemiah just read, right? Well, look at Nehemiah 8, verses 7 and following. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin... Echid, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kelita, Azariah, the names go on, you can read them, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, but it doesn't end there. It goes on to say, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Note the response of the people later in verses 9 and following. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why say that? For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go, enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying this, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. This is a theme throughout biblical preaching, the reading, teaching, explanation, and application of Scripture. It either creates, on one hand, attentive hearts, as these people's hearts were attentive, or it creates calloused hearts. Now, there's some people who ride that fine line in the middle which is just to go over and under, over and under, not paying much attention one way or the other. <clears throat> but as we see this effect of God's Word and God's teachers of Scripture, call them preachers, teachers, or what you will, we must examine our hearts and our reaction to the teaching of God's Word to see that we treat it as it truly is, the occasion and opportunity for our hearts to worship Him. <clears throat> because of all the elements of worship, you perhaps would not debate prayer, singing, the creeds. Various and sundry, we'll get to the ordinances in a minute. <clears throat> because of all the elements of worship, this is easily the most volatile element of all in its result in the hearts of men. <clears throat> because here is where we get down to the only element of worship. Of which it is said, As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. This is God speaking. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Now Satan understands this power of God's word as it is read and as it is explained. For people to go out and live it. And this is the point at which he is going to be most active in seeking to hinder it. Because when God's word is read and explained, the power of God is at work, and Satan must fight it. If you see the point at which your enemy is most effective, you cannot ignore it unless you want your enemy to defeat you with great vigor. You must attack that point and fight it tooth and nail and that is what Satan does in the reading and the expounding of scripture (coughs) and so he fights this with all of his strength and with all of his means (coughs) we see there are many examples of scripture being explained preached taught throughout the New Testament as well Christ explained scripture when he read the Old Testament prophecy and said this Luke 4, verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And at that point, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Between this and his following remarks, you might conclude that you wished all sermons were like this, short unless you decide based upon this one scriptural example that shorter sermons make a happier congregation look at the results in this congregation we read further in verse 29 that the people after this very very succinct message from Jesus got up they drove him out of town and that doesn't mean in their cars that means they were running behind him pushing shoving him drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. We won't have another such sermon here again. Thank you very much. (laughs) (coughs) We have further examples of Scripture being explained and expounded throughout the New Testament. Christ explained the Scriptures to the two men who were on the road to Emmaus. And what does it say how those men reacted when they realized who Christ was and how he had explained all, this, all the circumstances surrounding the Christ and why he had to die and how he had to rise again. All these details on this long walk to the road to Emmaus. What does it say they said among themselves when they realized that it was Christ and he had gone from them? What did they say to one another? Who knows it? Surely our hearts were strangely warmed. Right. Our hearts are strangely warmed. Our, did not our hearts burn within us? That is the result of worship. When people are involved in worship, in considering the word of God and its ties together and God's power at work in his word. <coughs> there are many other examples. You can look up the example of Philip as he expounded the scriptures to the Ethiopian eunuch. And Jesus, when he went back to Jerusalem... We read this in Luke 24, verse 45. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. (coughs) Paul, (coughs) preaching to the people when Eutychus fell out of the window. He preached for a long period of time and it was hot up there. And this fellow who was sitting in the window fell out, plumb out, and he hit the ground he died. Paul went out and prayed over him and brought him back to life by the power of God. And... (coughs) They took Eutychus on home, and Paul continued to preach until morning. <clears throat> That's a fine example there of a lengthy discourse, one too for all, for which all the people but Eutychus apparently remained, despite its length and despite the deserved or undeserved reputation that some people have given Paul as less than a flashy preacher. Why have I used so many scriptural evidences <clears throat> to point out the way in which the Bible? was expounded, explained, and applied in biblical times because one of the things which Satan seeks to use is saying that the explanation of Scripture, the preaching of Scripture, is no longer applicable today. We're in a world, we're in an internet world today, folks. We're in an instant reaction world. We're in a world when you can fax a letter, which I do on a regular basis, to your missionaries across the ocean. And it gets there faster than you could even get it out of your printer. Well, it depends on whose printer you have. <laughs> well, Satan is seeking to convince us that the explanation of Scripture is no longer necessary. That we can understand it, that we can read books. The sermons are too dull, too boring. And there is any way in the world in which you can criticize the person who is explaining scripture. He's too dull. He's too boring. He's too short. He's too long. He's too tall. He's too short. Well, just go on ad infinitum about these sorts of things. But the question is not so much, how do we deal with the person delivering the message? Because Satan wants us to think about how we are dealing with the person delivering the message and forget about the message. Because as long as he can sidetrack us, then he has accomplished his purpose because it is God's word that has power. And as it is explained, that is when the Holy Spirit begins to work within us to say, how do you deal with this issue? How do you deal with this issue? It is important for us not only to focus on dealing with the issue of God's word in our worship as a congregation, but in our families as well. To teach our families that God's word oftentimes needs to be explained. Even as Neil was reading this morning the story about Melchizedek and pointing out the fact in his prayer that Melchizedek (coughs) offered (coughs) Abraham. What did he offer him? Do you remember that? in that passage? Bread and wine. And that was the first time that had ever occurred to me, that here this priest of the Old Testament did the same thing which Christ has done to us in communion. So the explanation of Scripture is a glorious event which goes on and on and on. We should never put it down, demean it, or ignore it. We must deal with it. For fear that by shaming or disgracing or having nothing to do with the person who is delivering the message, we would ignore the very word of God itself. We need to realize as well that what God is desiring for us in his word is that we not only hear it, listen to it, understand it, but that the result through humility is our obedience to it. Because until the obedience happens, the worship is not true and meaningful <clears throat> giving is also an integral element in every aspect of worship <clears throat> financial giving is something which you and I do in our worship it's something that Jesus spoke of time and time again in the New Testament because what we do with our finances and our possessions reveals exactly where our hearts are and our lives are <clears throat> And the ordinances and sacraments, baptism and communion, are elements of our worship. Why? Because baptism and communion, as we come to this table, they are acts that we perform. They're methods that we use by which we say we are related to the King of Heaven through Jesus Christ, His Son. Would the elders please come forward?